Hello, my name is Ran. And I'm Joe. And this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, we interview inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. So, how are you, Joe? I'm good, Ran. I'm excited about this episode. Yeah, me too. Excited and daunted at the same time. <laughs> it's a big topic. Yeah, yeah. So, this episode, we're doing a very special episode with a different format. The theme of the episode is on adjustments or hands-on assists. And the reason we decided to do this is because there was a video a little while back on the internet. I think it was from the New York Times. It was featuring a teacher named Johnny Kest, I believe, a male teacher, who performed some hands-on assists. And some of them were a bit... I don't know what the right word. Yeah, the context was it was a teacher training, I think, and he was demonstrating some of the assists that he does. And some of the women there said that they did not feel comfortable teaching that in their classes and they would not feel comfortable receiving those types of assists. And he just didn't get the message. Mm, yeah. It was really cringy to watch. Mm, mm. And I posted that to the Facebook group and there was a little bit of anger there so we thought that this would make an interesting topic for an episode so we thought this topic was probably way too big and nuanced for just one guess and way too big for one episode so we have interviews with a whole range of teachers and authors and we'll be splitting this up into two episodes the second of which will be made available next week and we have some amazing guests for this episode including lee blaschke matthew remsky Jaisal Parikh from the Yoga is Dead podcast, accessible yoga guru Jivana Heyman, Claire Kinane and Gina McCauley. Yeah, I think one of the things about this issue is it is so nuanced and everyone brings their own individual experiences to the mat as a student and a teacher. So we really wanted to hear from a diversity of different opinions and different points of view rather than just giving you our point of view, which is still evolving because it's a really nuanced issue. And Ran and I, well, I'll speak for myself, we both came into this episode without a strong hardline perspective in either direction. There are some forms of hands-on assist which are an easy, definite no. There are others where there might be enthusiastic consent from the student and a genuine need. So we really wanted to learn more and kind of shape our own perspective and hopefully help people listening as well navigate this issue. Absolutely. And as Joe mentioned, we've got quite a wide range of guests on this episode and we haven't used the whole of every interview because in that case, we'd have over four or five hours of audio to get through. I've taken what I consider to be some of the best bits. There's also many other very good and educational pieces. So what we are going to do is we are going to put the rest of the recordings up on our Patreon page. It'll be available for free. You might still need to sign up for Patreon. But as I said, there will be over four hours of completely unedited audio that you can listen to. And, and there's some really interesting stuff yeah, there. We went on some really interesting tangents. Some of our three question, five minute conversations went for an hour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to hear all of this amazing content, just go to patreon.com slash flow artist podcast. So yeah, no, we're really looking forward to sharing this episode with you. So let's get started, I guess. So Joe. What are hands-on assists? My definition is 
any time. We'll say a teacher for the purpose of this episode, though sometimes in group work, it is another participant in the class, uses touch. Could be their hands, could be another part of their body. It could be for reasons of safety, alignment, clarity, if verbal assists have not got the message through. It might be with the goal of giving their student the opportunity to experience safe touch and the process of consent and negotiation that leads up to that. And feel-good assists, maybe that palm on your back in child's pose or that little foot adjustment that some teachers like to do in shavasana, a hands-on touch that's really about nurturing. So there's a lot of reasons why assists might be given. And I'll just start by saying I think intention is so powerful when it comes to this topic. And if you are teaching at a studio that requires every teacher to touch every student or you feel like you should just touch every student because that's what a yoga teacher does, I'd really look at that point of view because is that really serving the people in your class? I won't go too far that down that tangent though. I think we'll start with our first guest and that is Dominique Saluna, who is one of the owners of Australian Yoga Academy. She was one of my teacher trainers and I know that she leads her own teacher training specifically on adjustments. So I really wanted to get her perspective. To start with, we'll get her view on the four types of adjustments. For me, there are four different kinds of adjustment. There's verbal, which is first prize. There's demonstration, which is a great form of assisting, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, propping, and then last resort, hands-on adjusting. And that seems like a good perspective to me. Obviously, hands-on assist should be the last resort. Yeah, I think you should definitely try the other approaches first. And we have mentioned the use of assists for awareness. So we've actually got Lee Blaschke, former president of Yoga Australia, co-founder of Yoga Australia, talking about that topic. So let's listen to him. In relation to touch, it needs to be said that there are teachers and therapists who use touch as part of their assessment. And that really is to be encouraged. However, for any touch to be used by any yoga teacher or any yoga therapist at any time, clear consent needs to be provided by that student or client. And that clear and unambiguous consent can be either in the form of verbal, which the teacher then notes down on a date and time on their, whether they keep electronic records or written records, uh, at 9.30 on the 20th of December 2019, uh, Ryan said to me, it's okay for me to use touch to assess the mobility of his shoulder. Sometimes what teachers will do and purpose is when they have an intake form, they say, here's the sorts of things that we do. In my form of yoga therapy, I would like to on occasions use touch to help you bring your attention to a particular area or to assess a range of motion or something like that to, to assist your interoceptive awareness and that the client signs the acceptance of that. And if they don't, that's fine. Then you don't touch or you ask at that particular time. They may have changed their mind. So wherever possible, I think we need to establish that modification of postures particularly. I mean, that's the main thing we're talking about with touch. We can occasionally use it for pranayama, of course, for awareness of, of areas of a, of a breathing parts of the body, which again is inherently problematic 
if you're dealing with a woman or men, some men don't like having their chest touched, but you can understand there's issues there. That modifications or adaptions, and I don't like the word adjustments anymore, really needs to be by demonstration or verbal instructions in the first instance. And then if clear consent has been provided and then individualized instruction can be supported by the use of appropriate touch to assist the client, student's proprioceptive or interoceptive awareness. So when we're thinking about that, we talk about the appropriate use of touch to assist body position uh, and bringing awareness to a particular area. It's not to make a person go deeper or to bend a particular part into a particular position that it's not ready to go to. That is just not part of uh, quality yoga practice that fits with good code of professional conduct. It was for many years, and some styles still do it, but I do not believe it is appropriate. I think people need to have awareness of where the limitations are and work with that themselves, not have somebody forcing them with their hands. Lee raises a very key point there on consent. Obviously, consent is very important. Some would say vital. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And I think the point that Lee raises is that initial written consent in the example is a starting point. If someone says no, that's a definite no. If someone says yes, I feel like that has opened the door for a possible adjustment, not a blanket yes to every time being touched, no matter what the reason. And I think that is the same with consent cards. If it's the no face, that's a definite no. If it's a yes face, it's a yes to a conversation rather than a yes to the assist. And we're going to talk about consent a little bit more later. But for now, let's talk about the benefits of hands-on assist. Do you have any words to share here, Joe? I do, I do. And my perspective has changed a lot since I've been teaching aerial yoga. If I was teaching a group yoga class with everyone on the mat, I really feel like I could use words and demonstrate with my own body and get my message across in a way that I wouldn't need to use hands-on assists. Some people like them, but I wouldn't need them to make my point. Upside down, everything changes. So I really have had some situations where people have said to me, can you just move my foot for me? Because up and down and left and right get a lot more confusing when people are upside down. And if someone is, say, in an inversion and they can't figure out how to get out, that's a stressful situation for that person. We don't want to spend another five minutes trying to come up with the words that will get the message across if they just want me to use my hands to help them out. And I think that there are a couple of postures as well, which you don't really have in floor-based yoga, where I might be instructing someone to tuck their foot around the fabric in a certain way, but they can't see because it's behind them and they're face down. And once I've helped them do that once, they just know. They have that body memory for most people. So for the sake of clarity and safety and peace of mind, I definitely use hands-on assists a lot more in my aerial yoga classes than I ever did in my floor classes. And I have consent cards and we got them for the studio for the notes so that we would know right away who didn't want to be touched at all, and that's totally fine. And I must say, if I had someone who I knew didn't want to be touched in the class, I would hold off longer 
on teaching a couple of the more complex moves until I really knew that that person would be okay to follow verbal cues only to get in and out of that pose if I knew they didn't want to be touched. What I wasn't expecting is looking around the room and seeing all the yeses because I think I don't really... I don't know, I didn't come from a style that was really big on hands-on assists. They're not a big part of my own teaching. So seeing a whole room of yeses was also kind of a helpful message. That's like, oh, okay, people actually want this, mm. or at least they want the option. Mm, absolutely. And yeah, I found the same thing teaching aerial yoga. You, you Sometimes people are just going to be quite disoriented. Really confused, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so it can just be, and, and I do even ask them, like, do you mind if I press down on your leg or do you mind if I just untangle you from this position here? And they'll be like, yes. Yeah, please. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, I do think in, in some cases they are quite useful. Can, can you think of any other benefits that people might have from assist in general. Yeah. So this is a trauma-informed context. I recently did a 60-hour trauma-informed community yoga training with Joe Buick and May Lai Swan, which was amazing. It was really great. And leading up to that training, my point of view or my understanding was that trauma-informed classes was just a blanket no on all hands-on assists. And that's absolutely the case in complex and relational trauma where someone may not have the capacity to say no yet, even if that's what they're feeling because of their history. So in that context, totally no. And if it's in a mental health space or a school, sometimes there are just rules that nobody gets touched and that's also a no. But what I hadn't considered is how powerful the conversation can be about negotiation. So if learning to say yes and no to different things is something that you struggle with in life. A yoga class with a compassionate and understanding teacher and like a safe feeling space can be a really powerful place to practice that, to practice asking for what you need, saying what you don't want, finding the words to tell someone that you do or don't want to be touched could be really challenging in a relationship context or out in the world. And so on the yoga mat, it's this little microcosm where we can practice having body autonomy. And that's a benefit that I hadn't really considered until I did this training. Oh, that's really interesting. And I also asked Dominique uh, her perspective on the benefits of hands-on assist, and this was her response. For me, the most important benefit of a hands-on assist is to keep students safe. Unfortunately, we're living in a climate where more and more people are really disconnected from their bodies. And whilst it's always best to try and achieve, let's say, the assist or the adjustment verbally, that's always first prize, most people will really benefit just from a gentle hands-on assist. But primarily the benefit is to, to keep them safe. Other benefits are uh, to assist the student to really feel where the energy is supposed to be moving in the asana, not necessarily to deepen the pose, but to maintain safe alignment. And when I talk about alignment, I don't need, mean perfect physical lines and angles and all that sort of thing, but, you know, is, is the drishti there? Is the focus there? Is the breath there? And are you seeing steadiness and ease? 
good information there from Dominique. Mm-hmm. Anything to add there? <laughs> yeah, I thought of some more ones where I can feel a real benefit for hands-on. I guess I do this more in my Pilates classes, but sometimes in my yoga classes. It's a shoulder blade assist to try and explain what's happening with serratus anterior muscles and external rotation of the shoulders. And I've found that hands can explain that a lot more easily than words. And also, speaking of hands, handstands. So not everyone's going to do a handstand and some people may not even consider handstand part of yoga. But if you want to learn, there's this massive difference between kicking up against a wall and just kicking up in the middle of the room with nobody to catch you or support you. Having someone standing there being a bit of a human wall with their arm outstretched and then like helping you find your line and your shape and basically reassuring you that you're not going to fall over because they've got you. I feel like that missing piece, if I hadn't experienced that with a person, I probably just wouldn't kick up in the middle of the room. Now, before we go on, I feel it would be good to learn a little bit about the history of hands-on assists. It's a very common practice now, but has it always been the case? Good question, Ryan. I did some research, but I found it difficult to find any history of hands-on assists prior to the modern era. The best resource I could find was in the book Practice and All is Coming by Matthew Remsky. The book is a fascinating and disturbing read about Patabi Joyce, Ashtanga Yoga, and some of the abuse that occurred there. And I asked him what he had learned in his research, and he kindly replied. To research my book on the tragedy of Joyce's Ashtanga Yoga and the fact that he was able to assault women for about 30 years on a daily basis under the guise of hands-on adjustments, I had to dig into this question historically as far as I could. And really the expert here is Dr. Jason Birch, who's probably the most well-read Sanskritist in the medieval Hatha Yoga literature. And I I asked him, are there any indications in this literature? So this is prior to the 20th century, of course, of one of a yoga teacher adjusting or physically manipulating a student while in a posture. And he came back with a really firm no, that there's nothing textual to indicate that there's anything traditional about teachers handling or touching students at all. He did find one illustration of a practitioner assisting another practitioner in a posture that looks like the person in the posture is in a virasana or in a hero's pose. And the person who seems to be assisting them looks like they're applying weight to their thighs in order for there to be the proper leverage or something like that. But that's just an illustration in a, in a text. There's no textual description of it. And so as far as we know, really, physical adjustments in the yoga context begin to emerge in the Mysore asana revival that Mark Singleton describes in his book, Yoga Body, which really uh, incorporated a huge amount of influence from the physical culture of Europe of the time, including training in gymnastics and uh, perhaps even forms of dance, including ballet, in which it would be common for children, especially who who were being prepared for the stage, Uh, to be manipulated by their teachers into positions of greater flexibility. And in fact, that's what we see when we look at the archival footage of Mr. Krishnamacharya working with his students at the Mysore Yoga Palace. So two things here. One is that the impetus to 
adjust the student in this context is to help them be better performers or demonstrators of asana to be able to show off their their flexibility in a more deep way. Uh, as Mr. Iyengar says, to be able to thrill the audiences of the Maharaja at the time for which the children were performing. So that's one thing, is that the purpose for adjusting students in that context was to improve their performance, not to help them deeper into the pose or help them into a more contemplative state or you know what have you, all of the things that you'll hear today. The other thing that really can't be ignored is that while teachers like Krishnamacharya are touching, adjusting, manhandling their students into postures for demonstration purposes. They're also they're also beating their students in the context of, you know, this British influenced public education school system in which corporal punishment is a standard part of the discipline. So one thing that I've been trying to flesh out is this continuity between adjustments, physical adjustments for demonstration purposes that also have this disciplinary context or mode to them that can't be disentangled from corporal punishment. So to just pack all that up into a single sentence, we have Patabi Joyce and Mr. Iyengar evangelizing yoga to the world using physical adjustments to help their students demonstrate postures, but they learned those physical adjustments in a context of corporal punishment in which they were being disciplined by their master. And so to talk about you know, whether uh, adjustments are about the benefit of the student or not, or whether or not they're consensual, or how to work with that in the present day, we have to unpack all of that history, because that's the echo of what I would call implied consent in classrooms around the world today. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff there. So disturbing. And as we learned from our past episode with Thajo and Jaisal from Yoga is Dead, there is some validity in retaining a little bit of skepticism around Mark Singleton's work. So I actually asked Jaisal if she could review a couple of chapters from the book and just give us her perspective on this topic. I think one caveat just because of the way maybe I felt yoga tradition was being talked about in the book, but also in the greater yoga industry, is that the idea of yoga tradition is actually something that's difficult to define. Because yoga is not a monolith, and it has ties to so many different practices, religions, and ideologies. And because hundreds, of, if not thousands, of yoga texts have not yet been translated, and because so much of what yoga as we know it today, was something that was passed down orally and it wasn't really written down. And of course, colonialism forced a lot of yoga into secrecy, hiding, and stomped out pockets of it entirely. So we don't really have a full picture of what yoga tradition really is. What we do know is based on themes that we've seen sort of come up repeatedly in stories, evidence, and indigenous knowledge. But In all of that, I think it's important to remember that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So just because physical adjustments haven't really been documented, for all we know, there may have been a sect of yoga that has always used forceful physical adjustments and was like some of those other yoga sects where they kept their practices really secret and hidden and maybe Krishnamacharya learned from someone in one of those sects. It's plausible. It's probably not likely, but it's plausible. 
So yeah, that's an interesting perspective as well. And I do think she's right that it is plausible, but most likely that there isn't that much of a history of adjustments in yoga. While I appreciated Matthew's perspective and the research that he has done, I did want to question the lack of South Asian representation in his source material. And this was his reply. Yes, I have spoken to South Asian practitioners about field or the topic in general, not specifically about adjustments. So I can't answer the question as to whether or not in a gurukulam environment in which asanas were taught whether physical adjustments were, you know, completely off the table. I can't answer that question. What I can say is that the closest I think I've gotten to what a pre-modern or pre-colonial asana instruction scenario would have looked like and whether it would have involved physical adjustments is through my interviews with Jim Mallinson. Now, he's not South Asian either, but he he spent, I think, like six months of the last, of each of the last 20 years or so in central India with his Sampradaya guru, uh, who just passed away last year, actually. And his story about learning Hatha Yoga from him in what I think is probably the most pre-modern way in which we have access to, anybody has access to, is that he simply asked his guru, can you teach me Hatha Yoga? And then orally, he was, as you say, because it's an oral tradition, he was orally given instructions about how to do, I think, eight to 10 postures or something like that. He says that it took him about a half an hour and there was no demonstration. There was no adjustment. There was no hands-on anything. He didn't have to demonstrate the postures to his guru. He was basically just given an oral description and then told to go away and practice them. So there's no group class environment as well. And so I think what my feeling is, and I'm not like the accredited historian here, but my feeling is that we really don't have any evidence for pre-modern asana instruction that has this colonially influenced group class, physical culture, performance-based quality to it. We, we just don't, that, that is really a 20th century phenomenon that, yes, absolutely, probably distorts and confuses pre-modern traditions to a huge degree, but from a number of sides and with a lot of different participants. So one of the things that we have to understand about what Singleton is describing is that it's the, the modern Indian innovators of postural yoga who actively promote the influence of European physical culture as they extend or as they, as they try to create a Hatha yoga culture for export and for national unity. So it's a really complex question. With regard to like oral tradition in asana practice, I think that there's even more evidence there that because it's an oral tradition, we don't have this manhandling going on in a pre-colonial setting. So there you go. Yeah, really interesting, I think. I do feel that as much as we can get from what evidence we have, it does seem that there isn't that much of a historical precedent for adjustments. So take that for what it's worth. Just from that conversation as well, I think there's a really interesting through line where that traditional practice of guru to disciple one-on-one, even though they're working one-on-one, it was about that student's internal experience 
they were taught the practices and they went away to internalize those practices. One of the reasons why I didn't really give that many hands-on assists in my general yoga classes is I really don't like the point of view that the teacher knows better than the student about what's going on in that student's body at that time. So I would try and give functional cues about where we might be looking for a sensation, the kind of sensations that we're not looking for, like sore knee or sore neck, and try and guide in a way that heightens that student's internal experience and gives them the tools to safely navigate through the practice rather than coming at it from a, your knee's in the wrong spot, your shoulder's doing the wrong thing, let me fix you up. There you go. Now you're doing the pose right. And I feel like that really came through in that text about who's in charge of their body and their practice. And that's one of the issues that really comes up when it comes to hands-on assists. Whose benefit are they for? Does the teacher really know better about what a good alignment is and what safety is? Or do we want to be teaching people to find that for themselves? The next thing I'd like to talk about before we go on is our Patreon page. Woohoo! Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> so Patreon is just a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as one dollar a month and some of that money goes towards transcribing some of our episodes we tend to transcribe one a month and also just so you know we put extra content up there and as I mentioned at the start of the episode I'm going to be putting all of these interviews in full unedited up on our Patreon page so there's hours and hours of listening there there's some really really good stuff so I suggest you check it out Again, I'll leave the stuff there for free, but you might have to sign up and we'd love it if you'd consider just giving us a small monthly donation. Yeah, we really appreciate your support. One thing that might add extra nuance to this conversation is that of accessible yoga. And people with different levels of ability, they might need different types of adjustments, assists or help in general. So Again, we had to talk to the most expert person we knew on this topic, and that is Jivana Heyman. In this next piece, Jivana talks about hands-on assist and the issue of consent. I think adjustments in generally that word is kind of out. For me, it's like, I don't think yoga teachers should be adjusting students at all. That feels like that's something beyond our scope of practice, maybe for chiropractors. But in terms of assist, I, I do think there needs to be an extra level of awareness when working with someone who has a disability. But, but I would start by saying that there's, to me, there's really no difference when it comes to consent. And I, I think that's maybe really like the key part of this conversation is how do we get consent for touching people? And and that, that's true no matter who you're working with. You still need to have consent. So regardless of a person's ability or, or experience, you need their consent before you touch them. And, and actually, for people who don't use words to speak, maybe for whatever reason, we need to find other ways to communicate with them in order to gain consent. And, and it's still not okay to touch them without that. And in this next little piece, Jivana talks about the three parts to consent. I would say to me, there's three, at least three parts to consent. I mean, over, the overarching theme in gaining consent is communication. You know, that there's a dialogue going on between the teacher and the student. And I guess I, I would begin with that and then say that the, the three elements I always look for are informed consent, meaning that the student 
has an idea of what you're asking to do when you're when you're trying to gain their consent. For example, if you were to say to a student, "Could I assist you in this pose?" or "Can I could I make an adjustment?" you know, which is what we used to say or something. That's actually not enough information, I don't think, for anyone to make a decision to give you consent or not. It's too vague. I think we have to be a little more specific. So I would say, "Could I assist you in lifting your arm, your right arm, you know, a little bit higher?" And then having a dialogue around that. Oh, and how does that feel? You know, like, how is that? Once once I've assisted you, um, what has the experience been like for you? So that's informed consent would be more detailed information, like what I would like to do when I'm going, when I'm coming to touch your body. Second one I would say is enthusiastic consent, meaning that a person has to respond enthusiastically. Like if I, if this, if I go to a student, I ask them, can I touch your right arm? And they just don't say anything because they're trying to be all yogic and peaceful and quiet, which is great. But if they don't respond, that's not giving me consent. They have to actually say yes or, or nod or do some communicate yes to me in some clear way. So that's important that you actually get a clear yes in response. And then the other, which, which again goes back to communication right? There's a dialogue going. And then the last element is some ongoing consent. So that if I were to ask you for consent in the beginning of a class, it doesn't mean that that I have your consent to touch your body later. So that's important to consider too, that it's an ongoing dialogue and that the student's opinion or um, decision about being touched can change throughout the course of a class. Just from listening to that, I'm 100% with Jivana on the enthusiastic consent. Because in my mind, it's not just, is it okay if I do this to you? It's, would you like me to? Would that be helpful for your experience? And my other takeaway from Jivana's is it's a conversation every time about, this is what I'm thinking I might do. How do you feel about it? Say you have 20 people in the room and you have that conversation with every person, that's like 40 minutes of talking about doing something and it's an hour class. That doesn't leave much space for anything else. So it really comes back to that original statement by Dominique, how if we can explain something verbally or show something visually, that's so much more efficient than having to go to an individual person and have a conversation about straightening out their arm or something like that. And while there are a lot of benefits to having these conversations, and I think that it can be a really important practice, we don't want to be doing this for every single pose that we teach in class. And I guess that would be different if it was a one-on-one session. Maybe then it would be a bit more hands-on if that's what that person actually, that was their preference and that was a conversation that you had. The other point of view that um, Jivana mentioned as well is while there has to be enthusiastic consent, it might not be verbal with everyone and that would be a different negotiation with a different person. I think there's also another layer to this when you are working with someone with different abilities, how Sometimes the assist might not be touching the person, but it might be handing them a block or helping them get a bolster in place or assisting them in another way that is not you moving them with their hands. And I think those types of assists are also really valuable in giving that person that sense of autonomy so that they can feel for themselves how they would best experience the pose. So let's hear some more from Jivana. In the community that we're talking about, like seniors or people with disabilities, there's a lot of isolation. And so I just have to say that I think touch has a role in yoga. And I think it's a really subtle and important 
consideration for yoga teachers to make is how how can they use touch in a way that's healing and um, empowering of their students? You know, there is this way of approaching someone who's older, like as if you have to fix them or help them. And, and that's, that can be disempowering. So yeah, I, I think, how could we use touch in a way that actually doesn't do that? You know, that just helps people get in touch with their body and feel more whole and complete as they are. And maybe that's really what, what it is. It has to do with what is our goal or the intention of the, yoga that we're teaching are we trying to fix people are we trying to heal people in fact i used the word healing before and i kind of wonder why because i honestly i think that's not our job you know that's not the job of the yoga Mm -hmm. teacher to fix or heal anyone and yeah interesting point there it's not our job to fix people we're there to help guide them through an experience yeah or experience their own wholeness another issue that came up when we were talking to Jivna was that of safety and I think this is important on a couple of levels there's the safety of the student and the safety of the teacher so let's hear from Jivna talk about this issue and an incident that occurred with him a while ago I really injured myself assisting students I had a student once who couldn't get up off the floor after class. She she would she came every week, and so I knew her well. And, and she would always get down on the floor to practice, even though some of the other students stayed in the chairs. But she, she always would get down and get back up with no problem. But this week that she came, and she had MS. And, I you know, with MS, like many other, you know, conditions, you don't know day to day what you're going to feel like. But that day she was more tired and weaker and couldn't get back up off the floor at the end of class. And I And it was... It was like an empty place. Everyone else had left and it was just her and I alone there. And I ended up lifting her back up into a chair. And I really, I like pulled a muscle in my back. It was really bad. And I realized later that was the wrong thing to do. Like I shouldn't have lifted her, but it was like, I, it was my impulse because I couldn't, I didn't want to leave her there. No. And I, <laughs> and I didn't know what else to do, but I realized later that I should have called the fire department, honestly. I really should have. I should have gotten help and had it done correctly to get her off the floor. It really is like an emergency situation if someone can't get up off the floor. So I think it's very serious. And I and I, I didn't take it seriously enough and I just wanted to help in the moment. But I did hurt myself. Mm, so yeah, I guess we have a, an important safety issue there. I guess it could be argued that it's not really our job to help people off the floor, but what do you do if someone can't get up? Some of the things that you could do is could you bring some other props in? So maybe two chairs so you wouldn't be carrying their full weight and helping them get up that way. Or like Jivana said, like call an ambulance if someone really can't get up off the ground. And I was just thinking hearing him talk about that, that handstand assist, which I mentioned that was so helpful for me, is absolutely an assist you could get hurt with as a teacher. You could get kicked in the face or trying to like support someone's weight as they come up into a handstand. If you're doing that awkwardly, that could hurt you. So it's absolutely part of this. And my Pilates mentor, Louise Torb, uh, I did a Pilates for active aging training with her. And it was a big part of that training about if you see someone losing their balance, you cannot reach out and try to catch them because chances are you'll get pulled over. So It's choosing the right level of challenge for somebody where if you do not think that they are going to be able to support themselves, set up supports around them with different props or choose a different move that will be safer. But as a teacher, you can't put yourself in jeopardy by trying to assist a student. 
because that's not sustainable for anyone. And how bad would that student feel as well if they'd hurt you? Mm, absolutely. And before I go on, I just wanted to mention that Jivana is going to be speaking at the Evolution of Yoga Summit. That's on March the 20th to the 22nd of 2020. Uh, that's in California. So uh, we'll leave a link to that in the show notes. And the reason I mention it is because a lot of what we're talking about now will be brought up during that summit. So it sounds really interesting. I wish we could be there ourselves, but not going to happen. Back to safety. It's not just the teacher that's at risk, obviously. There's also the student. Now, we spoke to Claire Kaneen. We've had her on the podcast before, and she runs LV Chair Yoga Australia. So she works with a lot of older students, and she brings up an issue that happened with her a while back. Well, it was with someone who was covering one of her classes. Yes, as you'll hear. For example, I had this guy covering my class, and there's a lady in that class uh, who has um, osteo. She also has a rod in her leg, so it's restricted there. And she's also got a valve in her heart, the um, uh, pacemaker in her heart. A valve, everybody has a valve. <laughs> she has a pacemaker. <laughs> so I didn't know this, but the person that was covering me was adjusting people in that class, which I never touch her in particular. And he pushed, she was in a supine twist. And normally in her supine twist, like she would just have her leg up to the sky and that's enough for her. And he actually pushed her over to the side and fractured her leg. And for her, it was like not just about physical aspect of that happening, but she had just come back after recovering from that rod being inserted in her body. And the emotional toll that that took on her as well was quite strong. So as you can hear, that was pretty horrendous, right? Yeah. So him pushing her leg across, did that break her femur? I believe so. Yeah. Obviously something you want to be very careful about. And of course, as I mentioned, that's an older woman, but I'd also like to share with you a few words we heard from Gina McCauley. Now, Gina has been on the podcast also, and she runs Yoga Hara out in Bendigo. And we'll hear her talk about her studio policy and then the reasons they have that policy. My name is Gina. I have a small studio called Yoga Hara in Bendigo, and our studio policy on adjustments is very permission-based. We have permission cards in our studio that support students in being able to communicate to us whether they generally want to be adjusted. It's either yes or no. But even if they have the yes card up, we still ask their permission. So for example, if we're working in a pose where you might want to maybe support them in the position of their knee or their hand, it's just a simple question. They've got the yes card up. Is it okay if I put my hand on your knee or if I put my hand on your shoulder? And we don't assume, even when they have got the S card up, that their shoulder is okay to be touched. They might have an injury in the shoulder. Everything else is okay, but maybe not their shoulder. We also encourage them to flip the card over during the class if they're working on a pose that they know, oh, I don't like being adjusted in this pose, so they can flip the card over. But we're, you know, we really encourage them to honour that for themselves. One of the things that I like to say to people in terms of saying no is that you know, the yoga studio, the yoga space, and particularly yoga hara, that is the safest space. So if you can say no in this space, that gives you practice for saying no out in the world where sometimes you really do need to say no. And if we're not practiced at it, it can be quite a challenge to say no. 
The main reason why Yogahara has this policy is, for me personally, I was quite badly injured by a yoga teacher in Virabhadrasana 2, probably about 15 years ago now, which badly injured my SI joint. And I spent a lot of time recovering from that and it's still problematic. And I just think that this person didn't know my body and forcefully forced my body into a position that was not right for me. I, I know what's right for me. And I I get really upset when yoga teachers don't want to listen to their students. The students know what's right for their bodies. And I really feel that giving them permission and space to feel into those poses for themselves, that's that's important. As a yoga teacher, we can't give really clear instructions of verbal instructions. Then, you know, maybe we should look at how we teach. I don't think adjusting, forceful adjusting is even necessary in, in any yoga class anymore. I've feel really strongly about that. And so from both those people's experiences, the potential value of that hands-on assist was way outweighed by the injurious effect of the assist. And like, that's the reality. I think that's something that we do need to think about as teachers. What's the benefit to the person of me putting my hands on them? What do and don't I know about this person? And... Is there another way I could convey what I'm trying to convey with touch, with words, with a different cue? And maybe am I teaching beyond my reach if I'm trying to explain concepts in class that I can't explain with enough clarity that I do need to physically move people into these shapes? Should I be teaching these poses in a group class? Another consideration we have is scope of practice. Is it within our scope of practice to do these type of adjustments? Let's hear from Lee Blaschke talk about the topic. And just so you know, Lee is actually working on the guidelines on touch for the IAYT, the International Association of Yoga Therapists. So let's have a listen to what he has to say. I believe it would be great if every training organization had their own scope of practice so somebody knows what are the boundaries of their scope when they are teaching or doing therapy in that particular style. So as I said before, any form of touch to assist the person with proprioceptive, interoceptive awareness or to assist with the process of evaluating and assessing a person's physical capacities, that needs to have some form of permission that it explicit, not implicit, explicit. And of course, the yoga therapist or teacher needs to avoid any form of touch in doing these things that in any way could be regarded as sexual or in any other way harmful or exploitative. So Lee made a good point there that the consent has to be really explicit. And that was another thing that I got out of that recent trauma-informed training that I did It can be really helpful for people to kind of negotiate this decision if they know upfront what the assist is going to be, if it's really clear. And in that training, they mention it at the start of the class. So they might open the class by saying, during this class, there'll be the possibility for a hands-on assist. This is what it looks like. And they got someone up to demonstrate the assist. And so it's not springing that on someone. It's giving them time to think about it and to formulate their response. Do I or don't I want this? And knowing that it's always going to be a conversation. It's never going to be compulsory. 
So we're going to have to end the conversation there for now, and I think we've covered a lot. What do you think, Joe? Yeah. Yeah. We've discussed the types and benefits of a cis, some of the potential risks, the importance of consent and the different forms it can take, and we've learned a little bit about the history or potential lack of history around adjustments or assists. In our episode next week, we have some more amazing guests. We'll hear Maylai Swan talk about assists in a trauma-informed context, We'll learn about transference and counter-transference from Amy Wheeler. We'll explore race, cultural context, gender, and some of the other factors that play into this issue from Michelle Cassandra Johnson, Gail Parker, Jason Parikh, and Tim Sutter. We'll also hear more from some of the guests you've already heard today. As I mentioned earlier, you can hear full interviews with these guests on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast. If you have any comments or feedback, we would love to hear from you. Let's make this a discussion. You can comment via our website at podcast.flowartist.com or join us at the Flow Artist Podcast community on Facebook. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love.